we're going to look at comparisons today and the comparisons for period two are going to be the scientific revolution and enlightenment kind of versus the age of anxiety, the French revolution and enlightenment versus the English civil war and glorious revolution, and then the agricultural and industrial revolutions to the era of imperialism and the proto industrial revolution, which is kind of that second more advanced industrial phase. Um, the goal with this is to kind of keep the historical thinking skills that we've been working on this year. Um, and looking back, when we look at the scientific revolution and enlightenment period, the, the key component that we start with is this idea of the creation of a mechanized world. So that's kind of that evidence piece that you want to include early on. And underneath that evidence is Newton's laws of gravity, laws of basically Newton's laws of physics. You want to also include the heliocentric theory. Um, you want to try to include stuff like Bacon and Descartes' scientific method. All of those are key components of the Enlightenment period and going forward uh, are going to set up how Enlightenment thinkers are going to add to this concept in regards to how this applies to man. So you have the concept that the world itself is mechanized. Um, the scientists were trying to reveal God's handiwork. Um, not necessarily, they're, they're definitely not trying to disprove God. They're really trying to prove that his existence is demonstrated through this kind of perfectly working mechanical world. Uh, and then going forward, the Enlightenment thinkers are going to actually go backwards in a way and look at kind of an Old Testament concept in uh, Christianity, and that's that kings are actually a very unnatural thing. If you know the story of how Israel gets Saul, which is their first king, uh, that in the Old Testament, the, the story is essentially that the Jewish people asked God for a king because everyone else had one. And so it was kind of a, the concept that a lot of the Protestants believed was that the king was sometimes even an unnatural man-made thing and that a more natural system was actually that man should be able to govern himself. And so you have within that concept um, a belief that man should also have natural rights. Uh, those rights are limited, especially in that period. The concepts that they believe man should have are, you know, life, liberty, property, like Locke said. You want, and, and that's evidence that you could put. Rousseau believed that man should be able to govern himself as long as he has built, or that the society he lives in has built civic virtue. Um, that civic virtue is gained through education. It's gained through a system that is meant to teach people how to live in democratic systems, understanding that it is not a natural thing that people just wake up and know how to live in a, in a society like that. So you build that over time. And that's why many democratic governments that are very successful have pretty strong education systems, public education systems, because it's really necessary to build that process over time. Um, Within the Enlightenment, you also have the, the basic rights like uh, habeas corpus, which means you can't be thrown in jail for no reason and not charged with a crime. Um, you, you also have uh, Wollstonecraft coming up with a variety of early women's rights movements focused 
solely, or not solely, but mostly on concepts around educating women. Uh, again, education as a theme is going to be that consistent kind of evening in the playing field. It's very hard. And one of the things that Wollstonecraft alluded to was that she said specifically, women are not equal because you haven't allowed us to be educated. But if you educate us and give us the opportunity to be educated, we'll demonstrate that we can be equal to a man in regards to politics and other things like that. And so um, it, it becomes kind of that early movement towards rights and what they should look like. Now, even in this period, a lot of these Enlightenment thinkers do not believe that everybody should vote. A lot of Enlightenment thinkers that only believe that you should be educated to vote. It kind of goes along with that civil virtue or civic virtue. Um, now, that whole mechanized system is the basis of the American Revolution and American democracy. It's the basis of the French Revolution and the French experiments with democracy. It's the, the basis of the Glorious Revolution and the British version of their democratic constitutional monarchy. Um, going forward, if we look at the period of the late 19th century and early 20th century, uh, it's, a, it's a period of new physics. It's, it's a period of evolution under Darwin. Uh, it's a period where psychology is becoming popular. And it's when we get to the age of anxiety in the 1920s and 30s, it's right after World War I. There's a feeling that the world is somewhat pulling apart at its seams. You have uh, plague, or not plague, but Spanish flu, which feels like plague. Um, you have the <coughs> World War I era, like I said. Uh, you have the Depression coming very quickly. And so people are trying to find things to hold on to. And kind of as I think it was Max Planck said, um, science was kind of reliable in the Enlightenment period as something you could look to and say, oh, well, yeah, the world's mechanized and it makes sense and there's some some uh, organization to it. And then you get to the 20th century and Max Planck says, well, science no longer provided the easy answers for everybody. The The opposite is actually true. Most people, by the time you get to the 20th century, start looking at new physics and the theory of relativity and Einstein and um, the way that eventually they get to the atomic bomb and things like that. And most people are thinking science is actually very chaotic. And uh, the things that we thought were very organized and perfectly, uh, these perfect systems are way more chaos than they, than they seem at first glance. And the only constant, as Einstein would say, would be light. And so it becomes this kind of concept that society is disorganized and, and it's not really sure what to do. And in a period of disorganization and in a period of uncertainty, most humans will actually move towards wanting some form of an authoritarian ruler. And so much like uh, the scientific revolution and enlightenment and the experiment with the French Revolution, by the time they get past that revolutionary period where um, the, the goal was basically to uh, completely reorganize society, when they get on the other end of that and they've kind of screwed up everything, people just want a, an authoritarian leader again. And so that's why Napoleon kind of presents himself. And I don't want to go too far into number two yet, but um, in the 20th century, that's also the case. By the time people get to the end of the 1920s and early 1930s, the world is in a very chaotic, disorganized position. 
and most people just want safety and security. And so that kind of balance between security and freedom is tipping towards security. People are wanting a uh, feeling that they are going to be okay, that they're going to be provided for, and they realize that many democratic governments are poorly organized or are better at arguing than they are at actually getting along and getting things done. And so many countries start gravitating towards those uh, authoritarian motives of the fascists and even guys like Stalin and Lenin and um, the communists at the time. So it's definitely a period that is very different than the ones that preceded it. All right. So looking at um, the comparison of the French Revolution and Enlightenment to the English Civil War, it kind of has a lot of the same components of the first one. Um, obviously, with the Enlightenment kind of bridging the gap between the scientific revolution and the French Revolution. Um, one of the things that I think is most important, and if we're setting this up, you kind of have to compare the way the Glorious Revolution created a constitutional monarchy to the way the French Revolution just failed miserably. Um, and they, they go very strongly to a republic that ends up trying to do too much too fast and will eventually fail. The buildup, when we look at the English Civil War and Glorious Revolution, Oliver Cromwell spearheads Parliament's movement through. When you have uh, James comes in after Elizabeth, you have a period of relative calm in the, 15, in the late 1500s in England, which is called the Golden Age of England. And then you get James I, who's coming down from Scotland. And he, when he takes over, he's more of an authoritarian, absolutist ruler. He has a relatively tenuous relationship with Congress or Parliament. And then his successor, Charles, comes in. And Charles has a really bad relationship with Parliament. They have the short Parliament, the long Parliament. Um, and it's a period where a lot of this, this specific group, like the Puritans, are trying desperately to um, gain more rights within their country. And the reason that that's important is they're that upper middle class bourgeois system and they're a, a group of people with very few rights uh, and quite a bit of money. And that's generally where <clears throat> if you're looking at a similarity between the two in the French Revolution, that's the same group that's trying to get power in the French Revolution. It's a group of people that are uh, wealthy, but they don't actually have uh, rights. Um, you remember the three estate system where they're basically marginalized because they're part of the third estate. Um, and, and it's very similar in England. You have many of them are starting to gain some power in, in the House of Commons, but the, then the king just keeps dismissing the House of like, just go away, go away, go away. And so it becomes a period that is very similar um, <clears throat> between the two. The difference is while the Puritans do come in, they take over after the English Civil War. Um, they have a period where they, they rule with parliament. They get down to what they call the rump parliament, where uh, Cromwell just gets rid of everybody that disagrees with him. And even that parliament, he's unable to deal with. And so going forward, he gets rid of them also and rules essentially as a dictator. Now, that's going to feel very similar to both Robespierre. And eventually it's going to feel real, really similar to Napoleon. Um, because what happens in France in the French Revolution is they, they take over relatively quickly once they get rid of or dispose the king uh, or depose the king. 
They make him sign the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and then they just slowly take away his power over and over and over again. And going forward, they're going to start trying to just change everything. They go to the revolutionary calendar. They go to, uh, which is that 10-day work week, and uh, they rename the months into seasons, and they kind of just look at ways in which they can completely overhaul society. They go to the metric system, that whole thing. Um, some of what they were doing was smart. Some of what they were doing was just too much too fast. And if you're not someone living in Paris and you're really part of the revolution, what ends up happening is a lot of people in the countryside start questioning the motivations and why people are doing what they're doing. So the French Revolution its biggest error really comes when Robespierre loses what he believes is is the most important thing. I mean, early on, he's trying to fight for people's rights. He's uh, very anti the death penalty. And then he gets to a point where he decides that to build the civic virtue that he needs, he has to um, completely get rid of anyone who disagrees. And that's where you have um, you're going to create virtue through terror. Um, so once, one second, I got to go help my kid. Um, so when we're looking at <clears throat> civil virtue being built by terror, what ends up happening is it, it's a shift away from what is important in the revolution. And that's the kind of heart of the revolution and the people. Um, so it, in this period of the French revolution, Robespierre believes that the most important thing by the time he gets to this, uh, terror position is to save the state, like save, not the state, but save the revolution itself. He believes that it's almost going to be something that needs to be all the time. And a lot of people are starting to think this needs to end, like there has to be an end to this. Um, and we have to be able to get along with people that we disagree with. Now, I think that Robespierre probably went a bit crazy on this situ in this situation because he believed that he could only continue the revolution and the revolution was the only good thing and that everything else was just not good enough. And so while they did some things that were good, like levee en masse is great. It gives people opportunity to move up in the army and in the military. Um, they created the Declaration of the Rights of Man, which is great. It gives people basic human rights. They kind of moved away from a really strict authoritarian rulership of a king. That can be great. But then it in order to preserve itself, they're just going to kill everybody that they disagree with. And if you look later on and in, into the 20th century, guys like Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin, um, a lot of the reason that they were really successful early, obviously they're not successful in the long run, um, is because they realized that you can't just make this some kind of revolutionary society. You have to make it about the state. And that's what really the French Revolution failed at. They didn't have the ability to compromise in order to make people's focus on how do we as a state become better. Um, and, and it's something, and I, t I said this yesterday when I was doing the lecture as well, I think JFK said this in our system as well when he said, um, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but rather ask what you can do for your country. When you make that statement, what you're saying is we, we're, we're doing this because it's what be, what's best for our state, what's best for us. And it's not about saving a revolution, which really kind of loses the heart of the people. Um, and I think that's a real problem. Now, if you look at the English side of things, after Cromwell, you have a 
um, a quick end once he dies because his son is a really ineffective ruler um, and they are begging for a king to come back. So they, they, they lose the democracy they thought they had. Um, and they go to a king again for two more kings. They have uh, Charles II, and, the, and he's quite fine. And then they have James II, and he's quite the worst. And so by the time they get to James, you have what we call the Glorious Revolution, and that's where James, James leaves. William and Mary comes in. And when they come in, they, uh, in 1689, they'll sign the, the English Bill of Rights, which is a basis for most democratic systems in regards to basic rights. Um, and the, the reason it's glorious is because it's relatively bloodless. But if you look at why it's successful compared to the French Revolution is that one, it is relatively bloodless. Two, it's very compromise based. A constitutional monarchy doesn't just throw all of history to the side and say we're restarting. Um, the French Revolution tried to do that. And that probably is one of the reasons why the French have five republics, because they keep trying to kind of do too much too fast. And by, by the time they get to a place where they think they're going forward, they've actually just kind of really isolated a lot of people and marginalized so many people that might disagree with them. So, um, all right, let's look at... Oh, I did want to say in some of the things that you need to include for evidence in regards to the French Revolution Enlightenment is that kind of bourgeois salon cafe um, concept where that a lot of the ideas are in that upper class again. And that's something we talked about with the Glorious Revolution as well, or the, the English Civil War is that you have that Puritan group. And in the French, uh, in French society, it's that bourgeois, which is that upper middle class that has money, that has some access because of their money, but politically they're almost without rights. And that's really the group that is most successful when you talk about revolutions. Um, most revolutions will fail almost immediately if it's a revolution of the poor or the, the lower middle class. If you have that upper middle class that has wealth, revolutions generally uh, last a bit long, longer and have a bit more staying power. Um, all right, the last one with the agricultural revolution and imperialism. Um, one of the things is that the agricultural revolution is heavily going to sit on top of the growth of the Columbian Exchange and the scientific revolution. You have um, the seed drill is invented by Jethro Tull right around 1700. Um, the crop, crop rotation becomes a, a popular agricultural uh, system. And you have an explosion of food. Now, initially, that's going to help in regards to population. You're going to have a much higher population going forward. Um, and that's going to be really important when we talk about the Industrial Revolution. Um, as we move forward, one of the issues with the Industrial Revolution is that a lot of these groups that are now essentially low-wage, low-skill job and earners, they're going to be the group that is specifically taken advantage of by the, the system now, or, or by capitalism. Now, the problem, of course, is that capitalism does over time raise the standard of living significantly. Um, but there are a couple problems with it that you have to try to safeguard against in order to make sure that uh, it doesn't take advantage of people at a real high rate. So, um, you know, David Ricardo came up with the concept of the iron law of wages. That's the idea that if you are one of those low skill, low wage earners, that your wages, even if you increase their wage, um, they're always going to be basically at subsistence living. So you're always living at pretty much just the ability to survive. 
Um, and then Malthus talked about problems with food uh, and, and issues with people who are in the lower class having too many children because they couldn't feed their children. Um, and he, he kind of, and that's why Ricardo and Malthus actually get known as the, the depressing science when we talk about economics, because a lot of people started to see this as a, a very difficult, like economics became really sad to talk about. So people uh, kind of gravitated away from it. Now, in the Industrial Revolution, you also see reformers starting to come in like your Karl Marx and your Jeremy Bentham's and others like that that come in and talk about how the the whole concept of the Industrial Revolution and what's happening to people, like Marx said, is kind of destroying their species essence. You start to see more less and less people are specialized professionals that are doing um, really high skill jobs, but rather you have this really big group of people that are low skill laborers. Um, and you just saw this explosion. You, you did see a lot more wealth in the middle class starting to happen, but you also see a really big lower class. Um, and, and so over time, capitalism is going to have to adjust to certain things. So you're going to start to see over time the growth of unions. You're going to start to see over time some extra voting rights for certain people. Eventually, you're going to start to see national health care programs. You're going to start to see women getting rights. But it's slow and it's, it's a very slow moving thing, um, which, is, which is fine because it, generally slow moving things tend to last longer. Um, if, you have, if you try to do all of those things immediately, it's kind of like the fresh French Revolution. It's just going to end um, very quickly. So um, what Marx couldn't see is that, or, and what he did actually uh, concede, was that capitalism was probably the most dynamic economic system ever created. And because people were willing to kind of just slowly get a little bit here and there, people were generally satisfied. Marx believed that People would get so fed up when they realized that they were being taken advantage of and exploited that they would revolt. But the truth was they just wanted a little bit more. And the, as they kind of got a little bit more here and there, um, society kind of evened itself out and it worked in the long run. Now, when you get to imperialism, this is also considered kind of that second industrial revolution. Also going like going into even um, post-World War II, it's, a, it's kind of a long phase uh, and what, what you want to look at is how imperialism becomes this moment, like Lenin said, where it's the last stage of capitalism, where you're moving the uh, exploitation of workers at home to now exploiting someone else somewhere else, because it's kind of that concept of out of sight, out of mind. If you don't see what's happening, then you know that you're not as present with the problem and so you're kind of just okay with it happening and so Lenin believed that at some point your people are going to figure out what's going on and they're going to want to kind of resist that exploitation of other places um, and it, it does become kind of that calling card for a lot of the communists at the time of the you know working peoples in the world unite like the, the idea that people throughout the world should unite against this system that is um, exploiting them now one of the, some of the differences when you look at the imperialism phase versus the industrial revolution phase is this is kind of early capitalism versus a, a later stage of capitalism. So early on, capitalism is still kind of uh, they're adjusting away from mercantilism. There's only a couple of capitalist groups by the end of the 1700s when the industrial revolution is starting. Um, and 
the like uh, England and maybe the Netherlands, most other places are still operating in mostly mercantilist phases, which is very conflict oriented um, because people are fighting for resources. By the time you get to the imperialist phase, Europe is better at kind of going, okay, like, and you take the Berlin Conference, for example. So if you want to put a piece of evidence for this, you could put the Berlin Conference. Uh, and it has Europe sitting down and saying, okay, you take this part of Africa, we'll take this part, we'll take this part. It becomes kind of a divvying up of Africa rather than competing and fighting over it. Um, that, that being said, it doesn't mean that you're going to not have conflict between the groups that you're taking over. So a lot of the imperialist phase has a lot of conflict with indigenous groups. So um, you have the issue with Italy and Ethiopia. Um, you have the issues with this, the Boer War and the English in South Africa. Um, you have issues with the English in the Opium War, and that's with China. Uh, the English have issues in the Raj, and that's in India. Um, so there, there's places kind of throughout the world where indigenous groups are resisting the imperialism that is happening. Um, so I would say there's a shift from the early industrial phase where people are kind of still competing for resources with each other to now you're, you're almost just fighting with the indigenous group you're taking over. And there's a heavy component at this point. You know, the enlightenment was one thing, but by the time you get to the imperialist phase, that's where we talked about that kind of scientific racism of um, the, the whole survival of the fittest white man's burden, um, that whole concept where U Europeans saw it as their responsibility to go and help these groups that were, in their mind, either heathen or backwards or whatever, and, or a lesser civilization. And um, so that, that phase of imperialism has that heavy um, component of white man's burden uh, and social Darwinism involved as well. So um, I would say both phases are going to drastically move forward um, society. Uh, from a societal standpoint, I would say the Industrial Revolution and Agricultural Revolution moves society forward the most because it gives people more and more free time. Um, but then again, there's a, a number of societal issues in, in regards to urbanization, in regards to what Marx said with uh, species essence and losing oneself to kind of become a function of the machinery of capitalism and whatnot. Um, and you get to the imperialism phase. And, and as Lenin said, you're almost exporting that uh, exploitation somewhere else. Um, and that's going to be a significant shift in that period. So, um, all right. So when we look at period two specifically, this is for us now that we don't have period four to deal with. This is the period where I would argue the most change in regards to politics, economics, um, and society is happening is in this 1648 to 1815 period. Um, because the scientific revolution kind of bridges that first part of it, because ag and industrial hits the middle, and then you get to that experimentation of the French Revolution at the end of this period, I would argue that this period is probably the most dynamic as far as if you looked at before 1648 and you looked after 1815, you would probably start see the starkest contrast um, in European history because um, you have essentially gone through an enlightenment period and experiments with enlightenment and gotten on the other end of it and gone back to an age of conservatism, which is kind of ironic because you start 1648 in absolutism 
and you end 1815 with the age of conservatism so that the middle is kind of the chaos period. Um, all right, I'm going to stop it there and I'll let you guys ask questions here. Yeah.